Hello and welcome to the Thriving on Purpose broadcast. My name is Sebastian Richard and tonight we continue our uh, study, our studying of the book Kingdom Fundamentals as we go through this wonderful, wonderful book and we learn more about the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God means and what it means for you. But before we continue this study with part 4B of Understanding the Kingdom of God, uh, which is titled The King to the Rescue. Uh, let me just uh, give a message of public interest. If you haven't done so already, make sure you head on to thrivingonpurpose.com. Just not yet. Wait till I'm done with the broadcast, of course. And sign up to our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with all of our news and updates. This will also enable you to follow this ministry despite all the censorship. And while you're at it, make sure you check out our unique Kingdom, Patriot, and Remnant Arising merch, jewelry, and apparel, uh, of which you can see I'm wearing tonight. Again, I love this cap. It's absolutely fantastic. And if you feel led to partner with this teaching ministry or to sow a seed, you can do so on our website by, by clicking on the Give button. And now I have taken far too much of your time. Let us get on with tonight's teaching as we keep diving deeper into the history of God's salvation. So, of course, if you're joining us just now, this is part 4B. I began this series a while back, uh, so I urge you, if you haven't done so already, you should go back and listen to part one all the way to this one. Uh, there's many chapters that are very long, so I have to split them in two parts. So last week I did part 4A, and now I'm doing part 4B. And uh, as we continue, let me start with the following headline, or I should say subhead, which reads, A physical realm requires a physical body. Now, here's something that you need to understand. To have legality in the earth realm, you need a physical body. Every living creature on the earth has a physical body, from the smallest cell to the biggest whale, from the smallest mouse to the giant sequoia tree. God decreed it this way. So number one, this is why when you die, you don't, you have to leave, pardon me, you have to leave the earth realm. When you die and you don't have a body anymore, you basically become illegal here on the earth. Number two, this also explains why demons, who are the spirits of the deceased Nephilim of Genesis chapter 6, want to inhabit human bodies all the time. This is their pathetic attempt at becoming legal in the earth realm once more. Ever since the flood, they have been wandering the earth looking for rest, i.e. looking for a human body as uh, taught by Jesus in Matthew uh, chapter 12, verse 43. So they are illegal here. They are in limbo. They are awaiting judgment, and they know it. Number three, this is also, uh, this also is why be God became incarnate, became, he came in the flesh. And we looked at this last week, the, the importance of this, uh, this part of, um, 
the salvation of God in the ministry of Jesus Christ. So God became incarnate in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. It was the best way for him to enter the earth realm fully and legally to take back what the enemy had stolen. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. We'll definitely talk about the work of Christ a little bit later in the next chapter because it's fundamental to explain the kingdom of God. See, before God could come into the earth realm in the person of Jesus Christ, he had to set some wheels in motion. Remember, the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that God sent his son in the fullness of time. So what does this mean? Well, the, the expression in the fullness of time can also mean after a due length of time has elapsed or eventually. Other synonyms may include in due course, when the time is ripe, at a later date, one day, someday, in a while, etc. So God first had to reestablish his covenant with man. You see, through disobedience or sin, man had broken relationship. He had a broken relationship with God, and that relationship needed mending. It was a broken state, and it was a broken realm. To put it lightly, man and God were not on very good terms, okay? <laughs> so a man was not on good terms with the Almighty. As Paul put it, we were children of disobedience. So it was necessary for God to be in covenant with a few good men in the earth realm to, over time, make his big move in the person of Jesus Christ, entering the earth realm in the flesh and then restoring all things. So that's where God's various covenants or partnerships came into play. And bear with me here as I am not uh, reiterating exact theological concepts of dispensationalism. I have a hard time even pronouncing it. There are variances between proper dispensationalism doctrine and what I'm explaining here for the sake of understanding how God partnered with man in the earth realm. Nevertheless, I feel like these are really good, um, uh, really show how God uh, used stepping stones, gradual stepping stones to really came back with uh, coming back in the earth realm with full legality, which was a process that took centuries. And it was a process that had to do with timing. It had to do with partnerships with, with men who were uh, filled with faith and who were obedient. So there was all these factors that needed to be taken into account as God did his uh, various partnerships with these men. So we're going to look at these because they're so important to understand the work of Jesus Christ because they lead us to understanding the work of Jesus Christ. So number one, first, God chose Noah to re-establish his law of intent. I call it a law of intent because it basically re-established the intent of God in the earth realm. What was his intent? Okay, pardon me. So Genesis chapter 9 is a reiteration of God's desire for man, which is found in Genesis chapter 1. It is called the Noahic, 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 Noahic covenant. 
And it reads as follows, if you, if you read it in Genesis uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Then God blessed Noah and his sons. Now remember, they, they came out of they came out of the ark, the flood happened, wiped out all the Nephilim, uh, wiped out all the wicked men, and there was a, a reset. So this is what God said in Genesis 9, 1 to 3. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Now, this sounds a lot like the be fruitful and multiply from Genesis chapter 1, verses uh, 26 to 28. However, you're going to notice two major differences with the, the first reiterate iteration of this, which is found in Genesis chapter 1. So number one, the word dominion is now interestingly, or should I say conspicuously, absent. This is very important. See, God is perfect in his way of wording things, in his, in his, whether he says a word or withholds to say a word. There's so much that can be read in, in a Bible passage. And number two, man is now told that he can eat animals as opposed to before, because before he was told in the garden he could eat of every tree in the garden, all that. So it was we were vegans when we were initially created. But now with uh, man having fallen, uh, and after that there was uh, meat, Men would eat animals and all, and so on and so forth. But this God was basically sanctioning it now, saying it's okay, like you can eat of, of the flesh of animals. So after the flood, mankind got a reset of sorts, but it was not a full reset as it was. He didn't, in other words, he didn't set everything back the way it was in Genesis chapter one. You see, Satan retained his usurped power over the realm. Therefore, man still had to work in a fallen creation with the devil still operating as the prince of this world, as the Bible calls him. So, while man still retained some dominance in the earth, right, especially over nature and animals, he had lost much of his original spiritual authority, his original dominion, which was now in the devil's grip. Also understand, uh, also under this covenant, God gave the rainbow as a reminder that he would never again flood the whole earth on the account of sin. But the kingdom of God was, was yet to come. The kingdom of God was yet to come. Secondly, number two of his, uh, I guess you could say, covenants, he chose Abram, also known as Abraham, to begin his master plan of re-entry and conquest. So the word covenant has the following synonyms. Contract, compact, treaty, pact, accord, deal, bargain, settlement, agreement, and so on and so forth. I explained earlier how in order to have legality in the earth realm, God needs able-bodied men who are in agreement or in covenant with him and with his word so that God can have access to intervene in the earth realm. You see, biological bodies are needed in this realm to be illegal and able. Uh, 
This is why God made a covenant with Abraham. Now, the covenant with Abraham, when he came in agreement with, uh, when Abraham came in agreement with God and he obeyed him, was the equivalent of God creating what we would call a beachhead in the earth realm through men's flesh and with their accord. This was very significant. In fact, this covenant in the flesh through the promise of many descendants was so important that God ordered Abraham to mark it on all of his descendants. This is why he ordained in Genesis chapter 17, circumcision. It was meant to be the symbol or mark of the covenant in the flesh through many offspring and generations until the arrival of Christ in the flesh. So it, it was to mark basically the reproduction. Hence, the mark was on the genitals. But let's get back to this covenant acting as a beachhead in the earth realm. You see, in military terms, a beachhead is a defended position on a beach taken from the enemy by landing forces from which an attack can be launched. It is the first parcel of land that is officially conquered by an invading army. So the Abrahamic covenant is composed of three main things as this beachhead in the flesh. Well, number one, it is composed of the, the promised land of Canaan. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God said, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Number two, it is composed of the promise of numerous offspring in Genesis 15.5. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And number three, it is composed of the promise of blessing unto the world. That's from Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, the, these three promises definitely indicate a retaking of territory. The first has to do with land. The second has to do with growth in numbers. And that's very important. And finally, the third has to do with positive influence and expansion. Now, this is fascinating because the whole idea of creating the earth realm was for God to create a colony of heaven in a different realm. So you could compare it to the British Commonwealth. Every country in the British Commonwealth is a colony of Great Britain. So the Commonwealth was Great Britain spreading its influence abroad. I live in Canada. I'm Canadian. Those who know me know this fact. Now, on our money, on our Canadian money, we still have the picture of the Queen of England. So we are, in essence, a colony of Great Britain. And here's an interesting side note. In Hebrew, the word Brit literally means covenant. It comes from the word meaning to cut, i.e. to cut a covenant. Furthermore, the suffix ish, I-S-H, ish, as in Brit-ish, British, means man. Therefore, in Hebrew, Brit-ish, British, means 
covenant man. Isn't that interesting? But I digress, and that's going down a rabbit trail that, that's not necessary for now. Earth is a colony of the kingdom of God. We were colonized with the rulership of heaven. This is why in the Lord's Prayer we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. After the Abrahamic covenant, men who were born as his descendants, so the descendants of Abraham, and who followed the faith of Abraham, began calling themselves sons of Abraham. This is to say, we are sons of the promise. But what promise? Well, ultimately, this promise had to do with kingdom expansion through territory, descendants, and influence. The covenant of God with Abraham was crucial in ushering in God's lengthy redemptive plan and eventually make Jesus come in the flesh. But despite its greatness, the covenant, of, uh, the covenant with Abraham was not the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God was yet to come. I'm going to have a little water here. So thirdly, after this covenant, God built up the pillars of the kingdom by establishing Jacob, Israel, uh, Israel, and his sons, who are known as the 12 tribes of Israel. So he built up the pillars of the, of the kingdom by establishing Israel and the 12 tribes. So that's when Jacob came, who was renamed Israel, through whom God established the 12 tribes of Israel and the nation itself, again, in the flesh as a people consecrated to him. So God was solidifying his retaking of territory by establishing 12 tribes named after Jacob's sons. The promise to Jacob read like this in Genesis chapter 35, verses 10 through 15. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you. And kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you. And to your descendants after I give uh, to your descendants after you I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. So God here reiterates his desire for his people to be fruitful and to multiply. But he also mentions kings and nations, plural. Yes, kings and nations. Isn't this interesting? So the plan was moving along more and more towards kingdom vernacular. Nevertheless, the kingdom of God was yet to come. Fourthly, God officially brought man back under his rulership by setting down his law through Moses. 
Any kingdom needs laws to operate properly. Laws set the standard for the quality of life in each society. They serve as guides and establish proper conduct. After God freed his people from Egypt, he gave Moses his law. This law was to make Israel the most perfectly ruled earthly society ever and to glorify God as king in the process. It was not meant to be a democracy or a monarchy, but it was meant to be a theocracy. Unlike, unlike, those who claimed, uh, unlike those claimed by the Vatican or Iran today, this particular theocracy was perfect and it was made to bring about the closest thing to a utopian society ever devised by man. This is because it was not devised by man, but it was devised by God. The only thing that prevented this ideal from being achieved was that people, the men with whom God had uh, done a, a, um, a contract, basically an alliance, they were still sinners. They were unable to keep the law as was intended. And just as Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desires. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Now, there are many mountains mentioned in the Bible, some even by name. We know of the mountains of Ararat, where Noah's Ark uh, came and landed after the flood. We know of Mount Carmel and the Mount of Olives, just to name a few. But the two main mountains mentioned in the Bible are Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. The first one, Sinai, is where God gave man his laws. And the second one is where God fulfilled his law and gave us grace, revelation, blessing, and ultimate glory. Now, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, verses 18 to 24, we read this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Sinai. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
and to be sprinkled blood, and to the sprinkled blood, I mean, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. But here's the kicker when we talk about um, Sinai and, and Zion. There cannot be a Zion, in other words, the glory, except through Sinai, which is the law. They are both intertwined. They work together. Man could only experience Zion by realizing his failure at Sinai. Through Moses came the law, but also a glimpse of the Shekinah glory. Moses gave the people, of, the people God's law, but when he came back down from Sinai, he also carried with him God's glory, the Shekinah glory, which made his face shine. That's from Exodus chapter 24, verses 29 to 35. So from Sinai, the people could see the glory of Zion, but they couldn't quite reach it. So the law was to serve God's purpose on two fronts. Number one, it was meant, meant to give man a standard of righteousness to abide by for a just society and as a testimony of God's provision, protection, righteousness, and glory. At the time, the law, if obeyed perfectly by all in Israel, would have made for a utopian society. This is why David said the law is perfect in Psalm 19.7. And number two, to make man realize his own depravity and his need for a Savior who brought the greater glory and a new covenant. In this way, it pointed to a better covenant. The law pointed to a better covenant, the new covenant brought by Jesus Christ. The law was also meant to keep mankind accountable in their covenant relationship with God, their ultimate king, through obedience. It comprised a more detailed list of his expectations until Messiah would come. It served, the law served as a strict, beneficial, and albeit temporary tutor. As you know, a tutor is a rigid stick used to help a plant a tree, a shrub, to grow straight. Eventually, when the plant stands strong, stands strong, the tutor is removed. And yet, despite all the good stuff that the law contained in and of itself, because it came from a holy God, the kingdom of God was yet to come. Number five, fifthly, God prepared his people for worship by emphasizing his holiness through the Levitical priesthood. In his fallen state, man desperately needed to understand the kind of gap that separated him from the Most High and Holy God. And it was a big gap. So while the prophets represent God to the people, priests play the opposite role. They represent the people to God. God is holy. Holiness means separate or set-apartness. God, because he is holy, is apart from us. This required someone to bridge the gigantic, the gigantic gap between us sinners and a holy God. Priests were, therefore, established to represent the people to God 
And through all their required ceremonies and sacrifices, they served to keep the sinful people in relationship to their holy God. The Levitical priesthood was, again, a temporary institution. It was an image and a precursor of the role that Christ would eventually come to play, according to Hebrews 4.15. It was a precursor of the universal priesthood of all believers as well, according to Revelation 1.6 and 1 Peter 2.9. The Levitical priesthood served to show God's people two major things. Number one, God is holy. And number two, we are not. <laughs> the priesthood was God's temporary plaster on mankind's biggest wound, separation through sin. The priesthood's intricate, strict, repetitive, and orderly functioning showed God's people just how much is needed to be done in order for us to be in relationship with him. But it was only temporary, and despite all that the priesthood did for Israel at the time, the kingdom of God was yet to come. And we're going to look at number six after I take a drink. So number six. Sixthly, God allowed his people to be made familiar with monarchy. When Israel begged God for a human king, God warned them through the prophet Samuel. That's found in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 through 9. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Despite Israel's rejection of him as their king, God nonetheless made a covenant with Israel's great king, David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, God says this to King David. He says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever.
forever. That's from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. God is so patient with us, so merciful. He allowed Israel to have an earthly king. Because even though they rejected him in the process, he knew, he knew that some good would come of it and that he could use this model to usher in his kingdom. So monarchy was to serve as a practical lesson of how a kingdom operates. It was good for the people to be made familiar with imperfect kings and kingdoms before they would be given a perfect king and kingdom. They would appreciate it more then. And Jesus the Christ would be born from King David's lineage and even call himself son of David. But despite all the good and the bad that earthly monarchy brought in Israel, the kingdom of, of, of God was yet to come. Now let's talk about a better covenant, a better covenant. Through his different covenants, God presented his many facets to men. He is the creator, as we know from Genesis in his covenant with Adam. He is judge, as we know from his covenant with Noah and the flood. He is a partner, as we know from his covenant with Abraham. He is an establisher, as we know from his covenant with Jacob. He is a lawgiver, as we know from his covenant with Moses. He is a holy one, as we know from his covenant with the priesthood of Israel. And he is a king, a holy king, as we know from his covenant with David. All of these different covenants made with men on the earth were preparatory wheels set in motion by God to come in the flesh in the fullness of time and reestablish his perfect kingdom, his government, his rulership. But in the new covenant, it would now be established in the hearts of men. As believers, we now have been living under the new covenant, under the spiritual kingship of King Jesus, for the last 2,000 years. When Christ came, he brought with him permanent spiritual access to the throne, the courtroom, and to the king himself. And not just the access, but the kingdom itself in the hearts of men. In Luke 12, 32, Jesus said, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. This new covenant is described this way in the epistle to the Hebrews. I'm going to now read from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6, and then verses 10 through 12. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator, speaking of Christ, of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. 
I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none, none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now I'd like to talk about kingdom now or not yet. If you have studied in any way kingdom theology, or what is called kingdom theology, you've probably heard or read that the kingdom of God is under the tension of two different realities. The kingdom of God is both now and not yet in its fulfillment. We know the full and glorious establishment of his kingdom will only be completed upon the return of the king, King Jesus. He will bring about its fulfillment. On the other hand, we also know that much of the kingdom of God became manifest at Pentecost. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit's power on believers has released much of the kingdom's glory through men and through women of faith across the centuries. Ever since Pentecost, believers have both prayed, Thy kingdom come, and Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As a result, we have seen much of the glory of the kingdom released through the faith of men and women of God since the church began. Nevertheless, only Christ can bring its full realization at his second coming. Furthermore, I am convinced that how much of the kingdom we see now depends greatly on how much faith is exercised by the people of God in the process of time. That is, how much faith is exercised by you and by me. I really like the sober-minded view that pastor and theologian Timothy Keller expressed about the kingdom's tension between the now and the not yet. Here's what he said. He said, God's kingdom is present in its beginnings, but still future in its fullness. This guards us from an under-realized eschatology, which basically expects no change now, and an overrealized eschatology, which expects all changes now. So in this stage, we embrace the reality that while we're not yet what we will be, we are also no longer what we used to be. I like how you put that. Now, while this is true, it has engendered somewhat of a problem that I have seen in the minds of believers. You see, in the expectancy of Christ's return, many believers have, through complacency, under-realized their own inherent kingdom potential. You see, because we know that Jesus will set all things right when he returns, it's sad to say we have become lazy in fulfilling our own dominion and occupation mandate. 
I have noticed, for example, that my own children are also like that. For example, if I assign a task for them to do and then I leave, they seem to go back to doing their own thing rather than doing what I asked. And they do this very quickly. While they have the capacity and potential to do exactly what I want, they choose not to because they feel they have time before I come back to check up on them. Now, this, is, this may be funny, but it kind of reminds us of how the church is, because that is how the church is today. We are not expressing our full kingdom poten potential because we feel we still have time or because we expect Daddy, the Lord Jesus, to fix all things when he returns. In short, more often than not, we are guilty of being lazy and complacent. In the meantime, let us focus not on uh, what has already been fulfilled. Uh, what I mean is, uh, not let's not let us blah, blah, blah. <laughs> let us not focus on what the kingdom will be. Let us focus on what the kingdom can be right now through us. Walter Rochenbusch, I hope I'm not massacring his name, he rightly observed this when he said, it is for us to see the kingdom of God as always coming, always pressing in on the present, always big with possibility, and always inviting immediate action. So, to understand that uh, to understand what we are and what we have now, we need to understand the first coming of Christ better. His first coming, what it meant. If we fail to understand his first coming and what he brought with his first coming, we will bear very little fruit and we will fail to accelerate his second coming. So, when Jesus Christ came the first time, what happened? What changed? This will be the focus of the next chapter, which is titled, if I remember correctly, I mean, from memory, uh, The Misunderstood Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Misunderstood Gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is going to be so exciting. I'm so excited to share this because, you see, the last two episodes, we dove in uh, these covenants and how God proceeded throughout the centuries to uh, basically prepare everything for the coming of Christ. But the coming of Christ was the culmination of all this preparation. And uh, so the last, this episode and, and the last one prior were very theological in, na in nature and kind of lengthy and maybe a little, uh, maybe the kind of stuff that you guys are not really used to and like more like deep theology and, and uh, maybe a little bit more dry, like I mentioned earlier uh, when I started this chapter. But now the one we're starting next week, oh my goodness, I'm excited to give that because now this is going to be explosive and it's going to be amazing and life-changing. There are chapters like this in Kingdom Fundamentals, by the way. Uh, 
if you didn't buy this book. I am convinced that even if you've been a believer for 20 years, 35 years, it can change your life. I am that convinced of the content of this book. Why? Because it changed my life. And I would, I have been a believer for over 30 years when I wrote it. So uh, I wouldn't say this, just like throw that out there like this. Now, I'm telling you, you don't have to buy the book because I'm giving it to you in these sessions, right? In these teaching sessions, I'm basically reading from the book and you're getting it from my mouth. So you're getting an audio version, if you will. But there's something... That's different, of course, when you listen to a video or when you listen to it audibly or, or watch it, you might miss a few things here and there, as, as opposed to when you're uh, reading a book and underlining stuff that impacts you. It's different. I prefer, I, I prefer, I can't say I prefer, I really enjoy reading. Yeah, well, I, as a writer, as an author, I love to read. Um, all this to say, if you haven't purchased the book, I encourage you to do so. You will probably get nuggets that you won't get from the teachings, but I think the best combination is to have the book and follow as I teach. That's, that's probably the best way to go at it. Now, if you have purchased the book and you have read the book and the book has blessed you, well, guess what? The best way you can encourage this ministry, aside from maybe uh, partnering with us financially, the best way you can encourage this ministry is to leave a review on Amazon, believe it or not. Because when you leave a review, you're basically telling other potential readers, hey, this book is impactful. It changed my life. It's going to change yours as well. And you don't. You can just click five stars. You don't even have to, to leave text or write anything. Uh, sometimes people, friends of family, I tell them, leave a review on the book or whatever. And, and they, they, they have this big idea of what they're going to have to write, a paragraph or two. It, it doesn't have to be a big review. It can just be you click five stars and done. Some people like to leave two lines. For example, a friend of mine recently left a review on my book. It was something along the lines of... Uh, Great book, highly recommended. That's not long to write. Anyway, uh, I'm just saying, if the book has impacted you, leave a review. It will be greatly appreciated. Uh, I hope this teaching has encouraged you. I hope it has blessed you. If it has, make sure you subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Make sure you share this video with others because I'm sure it, it could definitely bless a lot of people who... Uh, who might not be familiar with the kingdom of God. And see, the problem with the kingdom of God is not that we're not familiar with it. Actually, I see the opposite. The problem with the kingdom of God is that we're too familiar with it. And you know what they say? Familiarity, actually, it's not what they say. Shakespeare said that. Familiarity breeds contempt. And this is kind of what the kingdom of God has been suffering from in, in recent centuries. It's, it's such a term that we're used to seeing in the gospels that we don't even see it anymore. We don't even understand it anymore. and. Uh, the biggest problem with the kingdom of God is that people think they already know the kingdom of God. I've said it many times. And this is why I'm doing this series. And this series, when it's all said and done, will probably something uh, be something of maybe 24 individual videos or close to that. So it's going to be huge. It's going to be maybe 24 hours long. But, and I'm just scratching the surface of the kingdom of God. I mean, those, those are the fundamentals. They're not even... The, the, in, the, in detail, I don't fully explore the kingdom of God. I mean, that would take a series of, I don't know how many books, <laughs> how many books could be written on the kingdom of God, right? Uh, Miles Monroe did a series of sermons. It was like 40 sermons all on the kingdom of God. And even himself, if, if we were still alive, he would probably say I was only scratching the surface. So the problem with the kingdom of God is that people think they already know the kingdom of God. What a shame. We need to repent of that and we need to get back into understanding the main and central message that Jesus Christ 
had on his heart and the thing that he was preaching the most even after his resurrection. So this, this is it for this week. Uh, I hope this has blessed you and I will see you next week. God bless you. Be blessed and thrive on.